Well, as we gather today, it is no doubt for many in our culture a season to celebrate um, some unholy holidays, but for the faithful, uh, it enters a season of celebrating the Reformation. Uh, for us as Christians, as confessional Christians, uh, the month of October dawns a season in which we are often reminded of the work that God has done done through his church 500 or so years ago through men like Martin Luther that we sang his hymn O Mighty Fortress is Our God or men like John Calvin in Geneva or Zwingli in Switzerland. For many of us because we're Southern Baptists and frankly in my opinion we don't really know church history a whole lot uh, there is one man whom I believe we should know a little more. His name is Hugh Latimer. And what Luther was to Germany and Calvin was to Geneva and France and Zwingli was to Switzerland, Hugh Latimer was to England. In fact, many of us as Americans owe a debt of gratitude to the work that Latimer did in the Church of England in bringing about the Protestant Reformation that would then ultimately come down through men that we know, like Charles Spurgeon or John Bunyan. Latimer was the premier preacher in England during the Protestant Reformation, and particularly in Cambridge. He worked to fight against theological error and much of the Catholic teaching of the day, bringing people under the sway of Scripture, and his good friend uh, William Tyndale would ultimately help and aid in that through the translation of the English Bible. But for all that Latimer meant for the advancement of the gospel in England, all of it would have been for naught if it had not been for another man, whom no doubt many in here this morning probably don't know. And his name is Thomas Bilney. You see, Thomas Bilney was instrumental in translating the Bible into English that Tyndale ultimately was arrested for many years earlier. And it was Bilney who ultimately had led Latimer to faith in Christ. And so we wouldn't have Hugh Latimer if it wasn't for the faithfulness of Thomas Bilney. And Thomas Bilney wouldn't have known Jesus had it not been for 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. See, one day, because of the, the rise in Bible reading among monks there in England, Bilney happened upon 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 15. And as he thought about this particular passage, he was struck by the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. Bilney, for the first time in his life, though he was a great scholar, knew all the ancient languages. He was a premier scholar, able to translate the Bible into the English language from the originals. He was a master at Latin, Greek, Hebrew. But he didn't know Jesus. He taught about God, he taught about Jesus, he taught the great doctrines of the church, yet he himself did not know this one in whom he taught about. It wasn't until the day he read his Bible and was struck by the Holy Spirit and came under great conviction that God was merciful towards sinners just like him. Just as God was stirring the heart of Martin Luther to, to begin to spark a reformation in Germany, so God was stirring the heart of Thomas Bilney in England as he began to minister, not through great preachers or great theology, but through his word. You see, any time humanity 
comes in contact with the revelation of God, something happens. A, a, a choice is made, a crossroad is, happens. And, and by the grace of God, the Spirit of God began to speak to Bilney through this particular passage and awaken his heart to his need for the merciful grace of God through Jesus Christ. Frankly, God's work in human history, a reminder that he seeks to redeem a people. But though the church was lost in darkness during that season, God was not lost upon his church. God uses his word to build his church. It's how he's done it from the very beginning and how he continues to do it. God makes his name known through the preaching of his word. And we're reminded this morning as we come to 1 Timothy that there are those who seek to distort the word of God those who seek to undermine the word of God, those, as Paul will say later in a subsequent letter, that those who accumulate for themselves teachers that seek to teach what their ears want to hear. Maybe that's you this morning. You just came this morning to hear what you already have concluded in your mind that you want to hear this morning. Something to tickle yourself. Something to make you feel good about yourself. Something to just to get you through the week. A little spiritual pick-me-up. A little, a little high on Jesus. But friends, that's not how Jesus works. No, these false teachers in Ephesus were leading God's people astray through obedience to the law and their interpretation of those laws. They were putting a yoke around the people's neck They were binding their consciences through religious rules rather than submission to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It truly was, in Ephesus, a gospel plus ministry approach. It was about the gospel plus doing these other things. And so Paul has sent Timothy down to Ephesus to address this issue and to get the church's preaching and teaching ministry in order. Brothers and sisters, Whatever way the preaching ministry of a church goes, so goes the church. End of the story. The teaching ministry of every single local church is essential to the health and vitality of that church. It is, in fact, what the Protestant Reformation was about, about reclaiming the scriptures, about sola scriptura, about being a committed people to the word. And we as Baptists have been people of the word since the beginning. We hope and pray to be faithful to the word, to submit ourselves, and to ask that the Spirit might reveal the truth through his word. And so Paul is writing to address those who seek to distort his words. Those he describes as as teachers of the law, yet as those who do not understand what they're talking about. Have you ever met someone like that who seems to be a religious know-it-all, but yet they themselves don't obey? We considered last week in verses 8 through 11 that the law of God is inherently good. That the law of God is good. That we as Christians should uphold the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant as good. It was not broken, but yet it was a part of God's purposes, we learned. That when properly used, it is to restrain evil and to be set in subordination to God's greater plan, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, at the end of the day, Paul makes clear in Romans, or in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, that the gospel is not plan B. 
but it has been the plan since before the first molecule was ever laid into existence. That before the foundation of the world, Christ Jesus was set to come to save sinners. Imagine the the, the sheer mercy of God that he would create a people whom he knew would rebel against him. This is how gracious God is. Because God saves for his own glory and not the glory of man. You see, when we are saved by the law or saved by obedience, we receive the glory. We did something. But when God saves apart from man, then God did something and God gets the glory. And this is Paul's point. And Paul here this morning is going to offer himself as a pinnacle example of how God does not save the best, but he always saves the worst. And so this morning, if you came with a sense of air and pompous about you, that I must be something special to God, that's why he saved you, wrong. Paul will say similarly in 1 Corinthians, he says that God chose that which is despised in the world, that which is not in order to shame those who are. This is how God works. He doesn't save the most important in the world. He doesn't save the rich of the world. He doesn't save the prominent and powerful in the world. No, he saves the weak and the lowly. He saves those who are nothing. He saves you and I. That he, and he alone as we'll see, gets all the credit and all the glory. With that in mind, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to consider this morning verses 12 through 17. There is so much richness here that that time does not afford, Um, but we pray the Spirit would speak. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, friend, the point is straightforward and the point is familiar. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And it is not by obedience to the law, for it is to the glory of God alone. That's Paul's point. Paul here contrasts that of the false teachers who seek righteousness apart from grace, but by works. And so the purpose of our time this morning is really, I think, Paul means to write to encourage you. He he meant to write this to Timothy. Now, friend, Timothy knew this. This wasn't 
light bulb moment for Timothy in his life and ministry? Timothy wasn't like, wow, Paul, man, that's what I needed. I needed to hear a message that I've heard you preach a thousand times. That's what I needed, Paul. Thanks. That really picked me up today. Not at all. I mean, Timothy's heard it. Timothy was with Paul for years. He, he knows the gospel. This isn't new revelation for Timothy, but he needed to hear this encouragement this morning that God and his grace is always sufficient in your life, regardless of what challenges you face. Period. You, you, you see, maybe you're like me. You, you grew up in a culture of church that was like you did something with Jesus and then you move on to something else. Like you, you respond to the gospel, you walk an aisle, you get baptized, and then you do something. Like you join a Sunday school class, you, you start reading your Bible, you, you do some devotional stuff. There's something else you do. But Paul is saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. There are things to be done, but you can't ever get over the gospel in order to do those things. In other words, the gospel has to remain central in your life and ministry, Timothy. It's not like the false teachers, gospel plus. It's just the gospel. This is a thought that we, we started with last week and which we're going to build on this week, which is gospel-centered ministry, is meaning that the gospel is the only thing that we focus on. We don't ever get beyond the gospel. Every, every aspect of your life intersects with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every aspect. Every aspect. From from, from your young 20s to your late 80s, the gospel and everything in between. The gospel is about all aspects of your life. And so as we consider this, this what Paul says, the Lord's abundant mercy in his life, the gospel, how do we respond? How do we live in light of the gospel? How is it an encouragement to us this morning? We see three responses to the Lord's abundant mercy in our lives. Number one, we see we ought to give thanks to him. I say often as Christians, we should be the most thankful people of all people because we rightly understand we don't deserve a thing. If you rightly understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you rightly understand you do not deserve anything that God has given you, then you ought to be thankful, thankful. Secondly, we see in this passage that we are to respond to the Lord's abundance by trusting him, by trusting him. Paul uses in this passage a number of uh, words that, that relate to trusting. Trusting is an important aspect. Again, it's not something you did in the past and move on, but it's something you continually do. Faith, belief, trust is an everyday aspect of the life of a Christian. And finally, we see that we ought to praise him. We ought to praise him. You see, there's a difference between giving thanks and praising God. And we want to think this morning about the fact that we ought to praise God irregardless of what he does for us in our lives. In other words, he's worthy of praise even if he doesn't do a thing. And, and you see, sometimes your worship of God is, is a correlation to what God's done for you. Your prayer life's like that, too. You pray because you want to get something from God, like he's like Santa Claus in the sky. And you praise God because you think, I mean, you thank God because he gave you stuff. You're like a little kid thanking grandma for the gift. 
But you see, God is worthy of our praise even when he withholds things in our lives. And that's what Paul makes clear to Timothy. That when life is terrible and hard and difficult and you're up against some, some really crazy false teachers and you're thinking about quitting the ministry and quitting the church, you ought to praise him. You ought to praise him. So let's look at these three points this morning. Number one, we ought to give thanks to him for our new life. That's what Paul does here. Look what he says. I thank him. Again, the reference is God, the Father. He, he just ended verse 11, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God. I thank this blessed God who has done what? Well, Paul begins to rattle off a number, number of things that God has done. Number one, he's given him strength. He's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So here Paul rattles off three things that this blessed God, whom he then goes on to refer to as Christ our Lord. We could get into some Trinitarian theology there. I'll leave that to you to think about. And so he says, Jesus has done some things in my life. And so I give him thanks because he's commissioned me as an apostle. Notice here these three things. First, he has given me strength. Previous, in other words, he's empowered me. It would be more of a literal translation. He's empowered me to do this work. He, he's given me strength to do the job. What job? Well, as an apostle. We'll see in just a moment that Paul wasn't the church's favorite person. All right. All right so if you were sitting on a pastor search committee and you were thinking about hiring a new pastor for, for your church, the apostle Paul wouldn't even have come close. Why? Well, because he had just locked up the other committee last week. Like, I'm not hired. That dude, he's a... He's an insolent opponent of the gospel. He wants nothing to do with the gospel. But God empowered him to do a job that no one could have thought he could do, which is to lead the church. So he strengthened me, he says. Secondly, he says, because he judged me faithful. You say, well, what? Faithful? The apostle Paul wasn't faithful. What does he mean by that he judged me faithful? Well, the idea that Paul paints in this particular passage is that God was going to work through Paul in such a way that he would become faithful, that he would be one who would be resolved to the service of Christ Jesus. And finally, here we see that he appointed me to his service. Now, you want to think that this has some, a bit of a polemic uh, kind of flair to it. In other words, remember... Paul isn't writing here in a vacuum. He's writing to a particular context, a particular situation going on, which is false teachers trying to undermine his teaching. And Paul here makes pretty clear something, right? Who does he work for? Jesus. In other words, see what he's doing. He's setting these false teachers up against Jesus. You see, this is the lesson that I learned many years ago and the lesson that I teach every pastor that I, that, I, that I ever have a conversation with. When you are pastoring your church and you get confronted with an enemy, here's what you do. It is not you versus them. It is Jesus versus them. All right? You see, when you deal with conflict, what you must ultimately do is recognize the, their problem isn't with you. It's with Jesus. And so that's what he's doing here. 
He's like, hey, look, I just work for Jesus. Your problem's with him. I've been commissioned by Jesus. I've been empowered by Jesus. I've been called to do this job. Now, only the Apostle Paul can claim this. And, and let me just say that there are no, there's no preacher uh, since the Apostle Paul who could stand up and behind any pulpit and say, hey, I've been called to do this by God. And therefore, you must listen. That, that's not, that's, that, no, that's not the authority that we preach from. All right? We preach from the authority that this was the apostles' teaching. In other words, what we are doing is pointing you and saying, no, this is what Jesus is saying through his messenger. I'm just a conduit. I'm just leading you, Pastor Rod. And Pat, we're just leading, leading you to say, this is what Jesus says right here. Not, I, I mean, your problem's with Jesus. And fundamentally, that's where we need to be positionally, brothers and sisters. It's not the world against us. It's the world against Jesus. All right? So stop taking everything so stinking personal. Your grandkids don't hate you. They hate Jesus. All right? That's it. All right? Or, I mean, that's just your, 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 your spouse, your friend. I mean, just say it how it is and, and, and stop taking it personally. Paul goes on to give thanks because of this new life. He reminds us, gives us a bit of a history lesson. And again, I have to just laugh because Timothy knew all these things. But again, he's trying to remind Timothy of exactly what so often happens in our life. We forget how far we've fallen. When Christ picks us up, we're like, man, we start to think, hey, I'm pretty special, actually. I'm pretty amazing. God must have needed me. And so Paul here, look what he says. He says, look, God did all of this for me through Christ, though, verse 13, though formerly I was, and he lists these three things, a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In other words, Paul blasphemed God, particularly Jesus. He persecuted the church. I mean, he, he was locking up Christians left and right. We're told, by the, uh, we're told by Luke that, he, that Paul himself like, was the coat man and, and held the coats of the, of, the, of the men who stoned one of the deacons in the first church. I mean, so Paul was complicit in the murder of Stephen. He was here described as an insolent opponent. You know, it's fascinating how Paul describes himself and frankly how most Christians describe themselves. You know, I mean, I was just, you know, just like everybody having a little season of rebellion and, you know, how everybody gets, you know, we have those high school years where we kind of fall away and, you know, Apostle Paul doesn't say like, you know, I was just struggling to follow God and just had some, you know, and I just kind of got in with the wrong crowd and all that. No, he says that he was a blasphemer. No, no, he, he says that I, I, I cursed God. In fact, and I persecuted Jesus, and I, I wanted to lock up as many Christians as I could. See, see, Paul was clear that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Luke describes it this way, that Paul was, I love this verb, ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, just imagine what that was like as a church, how, how traumatic that would have been, how unsettling that would have been. But yet this is the very person that God is going to invite in and say, no, no, I'm not going to make you just a preacher of the gospel. I'm going to make you the preacher to all the Gentiles. You're going to be an important person in the life of this church. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that, that he was unworthy to even be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. There was an air of humility about him. He knew that he, his former condition was undeserving of this assignment. But just as Paul often does, he sets up the bad news before the good news. And the good news comes in verse 14. Despite all of his weakness, despite of his evil, and ultimately as we... I'm getting ahead of myself here. Before I do, hold on. Sorry. Get ahead of myself. Notice this last phrase. He says, but I received mercy, into verse 13, but I received mercy. Why? Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that he was innocent, that he wasn't guilty. No, no, no. What Paul is saying, and this is what you need to hear this morning, brothers and sisters, that unbelief is the worst of all sin. I mean, the pretty moral guy, he was a pretty good guy. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a man of man's, like he, he was the man, all right? The picture that Paul paints in Philippians chapter 3 of himself is pretty darn amazing. I mean, you wanted to know the Apostle Paul, friends. He had the right education. He had the right family name. He, he had it all going for him. Many scholars believe that the Apostle Paul was on the fast track to being the next high priest. That's how important the Apostle Paul was. He wasn't just some slum dude, some enforcer, some hitman. No, he was, he was a teacher of the law. He was a master of the, the Hebrew language. He was, as I said, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the external things that made him look amazing, but he lacked the one thing that separated him from God, which was unbelief. This morning, this is what separates you from God. But despite all of that, we are told that God still had mercy upon him, though he acted ignorantly in unbelief, that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, listen to that again. Look, look at that. That the grace of the Lord did what? It just came to him like a, like a, like a breeze on a warm, sunny afternoon? No, 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 no. It came at him like a torrent, like, like a rushing of many waters, uh, like, like, a, like a tidal wave that overwhelmed him. You, you see, God's grace doesn't just come out like, like, a, like a drip. No, it overwhelmed him and overflowed to him with, love, with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And I don't believe Paul means his faith and love, but rather the faith and love that are his in Christ Jesus. That is that God demonstrated grace, faith, and love towards him. In Jesus Christ. There's a lot to be thankful for, isn't there? Friend, where has God shown you abundant mercy in your life? Do you, do you ever take time just to stop and to reflect and to give thanks? You know, so often what happens because of our sin we're so focused on fighting sin or, or being discouraged because we've fallen into sin or, you know, we're wrestling with it that we forget how far God has brought us from where we once were. I mean, some of y'all were like jerks and mean. You were sinners. 
And God has changed your heart. And you're not as much of a jerk anymore. <laughs> you're a little nicer. Right? I mean, praise, give thanks to God for these things. Do, do you see God at work in you? Maybe he's not, and that's why you don't give thanks. Maybe there is no sanctification going on in your life. There's, there's no progressive change. But, but if you're like the Apostle Paul and there's been some change in your life, and I mean, brothers and sisters, what I'm doing today, if you really knew me, you'd be like, that dude does not need to be standing up there teaching anybody about following Jesus. I mean, even my own kids could probably come up and be like, hey, like, we know our dad. He doesn't need to be telling anybody about Jesus. We're sinners. But God in his grace and his abundant mercy has overflowed for us and appointed us to this service. Whatever service that may be, whether it's vacuuming church floors or preaching Jesus, God has appointed you to this service and you ought to give thanks to him. Friend, we ought to recognize that everything we have is a gift and that nothing has been earned through obedience. That's what it means to be saved by grace. Everything you have isn't because you gamed the system or because you somehow tickled God's uh, attention and you got these blessings because of some amazing thing you did. No, put aside the prosperity gospel. Put aside the word faith movement and believe that all is by grace alone and not by works. Friend, those who serve the king in whatever service they have have been given a privileged position, friend. You are privileged in the economy of God's universe. One that cannot be bought with any amount of money or influence or power in this world. Friend, as Christians, we ought to give thanks to the Lord for our new life in him. He found it according to his purposes to save us for his glory and not for our good. And this should leave us then to trust that he is able to save only, only, he only saves sinners. That's all he saves. This is the second point we see in this passage, that we ought to trust that God only saves the worst of sinners. Paul goes on to say, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To be a great moral teacher, to be a great lover of, of humanity, to be a uniter, a peace. No, no, no. To save sinners. Which implies a number of things, doesn't it? Number one, that they needed to be saved. It implies that humanity is at rebellion against God. Who, who's Jesus saving you from? Who Jesus saved you from? He saved you from his daddy. That's who he saved you from. He saved you from the wrath of God that would have found you guilty and sentenced to eternal damnation. Yet he came that you might receive mercy and forgiveness. So again, brothers, do not, sisters, do not, do not misunderstand Jesus' coming isn't a sweeping away of sin, but it's a definitive dealing with sin. Jesus takes upon himself the judgment that your sin and that my sin rightly deserves. This is what Paul means when he says that he came to save sinners. The guilty. The, those who had willingly rebelled against God's law. That's who he came to save. The unrighteous. 
That's what we heard earlier, right? That the Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save the lost? I mean, Zacchaeus was, nobody was friends with Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in town, right? How many y'all in here have an IRS agent as your best friend? Right? Nobody does that, right? Those poor people. They probably, right? Zacchaeus knew that he needed a savior, and he found the one savior in Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, that's why I came. I actually came to save the worst of society, the worst of sinners. Consider also what we hear in Matthew chapter 9. Go and learn this meeting. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We all know John 3.16, right? But we stop at John 3.16 and... Well, he goes on and he says, for God, in 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ came in the world to rescue sinners from the wrath of God, the wrath of his father, the wrath that our sin rightly deserved. And, and Paul makes very clear that he is the chief of sinners. He minces no words. He says, I am the foremost sinner. And again, Twice in verse 15 and then again in verse 16. He makes clear how deep the depravity goes in the heart of humanity. That Jesus Christ came into the world not to save those who have their life all figured out. Now again, why is that so important for Timothy to hear? Well, on, a, on the first level of dealing with false teachers, he needed to remind the church that salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, through Christ's finished work on the cross. And, and not by any, any act of obedience or submission or prayer or anything, it, it, solely on the finished work of Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy, look, you need to remind the church of this truth. But I think secondly would be the implied meaning also, which is that Timothy needed to hear that salvation was by grace alone. He needed to hear those two truths. Number one, that he, that he was appointed to this service by Jesus himself. And therefore, he had everything he needed to do the job. And that salvation was by grace. There wasn't anything. Let me say it this way. There wasn't anything that Timothy was to find in himself that was to give him confidence in the work of ministry. Paul would say it this way to the church in Colossae. He says, look, it's not what's in me, but it's what Jesus is doing through me. In other words, Timothy was not to find strength in his own power, but to find strength in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is offering himself and is an example of the gospel. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. What reason, Paul? Why, why did Jesus save you? Well, what reason was it? Because you were going to be an amazing apostle? No. Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, might do what? Display his perfect patience as an example of to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
In other words, Paul is the pinnacle example. If God can save Paul, well, then he can save you. That's what the point is. He can even see, save your spouse. He can save your kids. He, he, he can save your neighbors. He can save your coworkers. He can save the worst of sinners. You know, we use the word terrorist a lot. We, we talk about terrorism and and talk about terrorists and, and uh, extremists and those that want to kill others, particularly those who are religious zealots. That was the Apostle Paul. He was a religious zealot. He saw people killed that were in opposition to his religion. It, yet he wasn't outside of the grace of God. And neither are you, friend. Neither are you, brother or sister, in the midst of the tragedy or difficulty that you find yourself in? Philip Towner says this, that Paul's gospel statement is therefore not simply an appropriate liturgical noise to supply his appeal. It is rather retelling of the story of salvation that presents Christology, the emphasis that the earthly human character of Christ is worth. In other words, Towner is saying it's all about Jesus and it's all about the gospel. That regardless of where you find yourself in life, his grace is sufficient. We all know the story, well, maybe you don't, but you'll know it here in just a minute. You know the song, no doubt, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves an amazing man like me. That saves a wretch like me. John Newton knew how much of a wretch he was. He used to buy and sell people. He, he used to go down to Africa and steal people from their homes and enslave them in England. The man knew how much of a wretch he was. Friend, our society has no room for forgiveness or grace or mercy. Someone who would do something like that would be written off. But not in the courtroom of God. God's mercy is abundant. He saves even former slave traders for His glory. Friend, He can save you. We ought to be humbled when we consider that Jesus only saves sinners. I know this seems like a simple point, and I keep saying it, but, 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 but I've been around Christians way too long to know that we need to hear it. God is not impressed with you, brother. He is not impressed with you, sister. He did not save you because you were going to be impressive. He saved you because of his own glory. He doesn't invite those who have their act together. He, he doesn't invite those who clean their houses up and, and has everything in order in their 401ks. He doesn't, he doesn't save er, the, the people that have those, those really cool kids that like behave and listen. I've always wanted one. They don't, he doesn't save them. Rod has them. I didn't have them. Now he's got to deal with pride all afternoon with those girls. See, Dad, Pastor Chris says we're awesome. Yeah. Now, we, we ought to be humbled, right? When we consider this truth. If he only saves sinners, then we must be a great sinner. 
If he only saves the worst of the worst, then, then we must be the worst of the worst if we are claiming to have been saved by the grace of God. Throughout this passage, he has used, again, the word faith many times in many ways. Unbelief, belief, trustworthy saying, I receive faith. Because it really is all about faith. It's about trust. And it's a moment-by-moment moment kind of trust. And John Calvin helpfully captures this, this same point when he says, We should never lose our sense of reverence and wonder about our salvation, no matter how many thousands of times Christ's salvation is offered to us by God the Father. And no matter, he says, how often Christ himself tells us of his saving worth, so whenever we are tempted to doubt, not have faith, our salvation, we should expel the thought, he says, that our salvation by grace alone is our shield that silences all doubt. Your shield this morning is that Jesus Christ died for you by grace alone, he says. Finally here, this very final point in verse 17. Oh, brothers, sisters, we could spend all day here, but we won't. We ought to praise him as the only sovereign king. Paul is so caught up in the gospel, so caught up in the fact that he is a wretch of a sinner, a broken man before a good God, and that the mercy of God Overflowed, not the wrath of God, not the condemnation of God, not the guilt that our sin so often carries with it, but the grace of God so overwhelmed Paul that he he just like kind of leaped off the page and begins to praise him. Verse 17 to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He cries out to the king of the ages, literally the king of the Ionian, the king of eternity. Jesus here, or Paul here appeals to Jesus as the one who is sovereign over time. The one who has authority. He's a king. Jesus is king. Isn't it good to know, brothers and sisters, when we're frustrated and we feel powerless in this world and we're up against some pretty amazingly big obstacles to know that Jesus is king and we are not. If you're struggling to sleep because of worry or anxiety, let this truth remind you that Jesus is king, not you. He's not asking you to be king. He's not asking you to be in control of your life. He's not asking you to be in control of the lives of others. He's simply asking you to believe in him and trust. He knows how to be a pretty amazing king. He is the sovereign king. Paul goes on to say to the immortal God, immortal, that our God is beyond death and decay. There's no end to him in time. It, it's not that his memory keeps going on. You know, we're just passing the baton of the memory of God like some old man that died many years ago. No, no, no. He is still alive today. He is immortal. He will never die. 
That means his power is ever present today in 2021 as it was in the year 62 when Paul wrote this letter. It is still powerful. And we have 2,000 years of church history to prove the fact that God still works. Thirdly, to the invisible God, literally the unseen God. Paul, Paul here is not appealing to the fact that, hey, nobody can see him. He's a, he's a ghost. Not at all. But that he's beyond the limits of space. Not only is he sovereign over time, but he's sovereign over space. He's the unseen, the invisible God. Wrap your mind around this truth that God is present with us here this morning. God's here through his spirit. He, he's not left us or abandoned us. It might feel that way. It might feel that God is a million miles away, but, but he's the invisible God. He, he breaks down the limits of space and time. He is an ever-present God. Though he is the unseen God. Paul concludes that he is the only God. He's the only hope, friend. He's the only God. There's a singular nature about him. He's completely unique. He's beyond anything that you would ever be able to imagine. You imagining God right now? Oh, he far exceeds that. He's far greater than that. Far more sufficient than that. Far more sufficient, the Apostle Paul, than all that we ask or think. I love that. You cannot outdream or outthink our only God. He is unique and he is sufficient. And he is worthy of honor and glory forever and ever. In other words, there's not going to ever be a day, brothers and sisters. Not, there's not going to be a moment today or tomorrow or next week, next year, or in a trillion years where God is not going to be the center of our praise and, and our worship. And Calvin hits hard here when he writes that we should never be able to reflect on our own Christian calling without being lost in praising God. What a truth. You've not been hanging out with God if you're not lost in praise. Because the closer you get with God, the more you shut up and, and, and stop your own ideas and be lost in worship of the one true and living God. And friend, this morning, you might not be a Christian. You might wonder, why did those people sing so stinking loud and, and with such assurance like they really believe what they're saying? It's because they've encountered the one true and living God. They've, they've had some seasons of their life when they needed a mighty fortress. They knew that they were broken in sin and rebelling against God and they needed something to keep them safe because God was coming for them and he was going to destroy them. God's wrath was upon them and they needed a mighty fortress to keep them safe and they found one in Jesus. You see, we actually believe what we sing and what we say. And thus we ought to praise Him as the one and only one who can save us. He's it. He ought to be our singular focus today and tomorrow and forever. 
because salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ Jesus alone, and not by our obedience. Nothing, friend, you can do can earn God's love for you today. And nothing, brother, sister, that you do can lose God's love for you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So friends, let us give thanks for our new life we have. This is his life. He's given it to us. Let us give thanks to him. Let us, let us trust him that he is sufficient. His grace is sufficient wherever you are in life right now. And his mercy is worthy of praise from this time forth. And forevermore, let's pray. Father, we pray this.